Welcome to First Baptist Church. Welcome to those of you who join us on Facebook Live on our webcast, as well as those of you who join us on CFNT and those of us, those of you who join us on KFDX. We are really glad that you're here this morning. Uh, welcome to those of you at the church at Shepherd and at our West Campus. And so we are one church in multiple locations in uh, the time of COVID crisis. I'm uh, really glad that you guys are present in this room today. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse verse 18, uh, verse 8 rather, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, as we talk about this morning some qualities of servant leaders. Before I go in that direction, uh, I would like to ask you to join me for just a moment. I'd like for us to pray for someone. We talked a little bit last week about some of our mission partners, and in particular, I would like to call your attention to our mission partners in Romania. My friend, Dr. Elijah Soratow, is the pastor of Grace Church, and uh, we talked a little bit about our, our assistance for the church last weekend, and Dr. Soratow <clears throat> texted me yesterday, and he asked me to, to please pray for him, and I certainly did, but I also told him that you'd pray for him. Uh, yesterday, he and his entire family were taken, they went to the, well, not were taken, they went to the hospital uh, where they were treated and all tested for uh, COVID-19 and they all have it. And so uh, we want to pray for them, but this is the urgency of the prayer request. The urgency of the request is that Dr. Soratow's daughter, Tori, who is 16, is a cancer survivor and she's had multiple rounds of chemotherapy. She has a compromised immune system. And we are going to pray fervently that Tori gets through this with very little impact on her life. And so I would just like to ask you to join me now to pray for them, as well as we're going to pray for our city. We're having a pretty uh, significant surge in our city. And so we're going to pray for our city as well. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning just to ask you to reign and rule over this horrible virus. Lord, um, it's a living thing and you could kill it. And so we would ask you to do that. But short of that, if you choose to do something else or go in a different direction, we pray for your protection. We pray especially for those in our fellowship and those in our community who are suffering and hurting. We pray for medical workers who are treating them. We pray for courage and strength for them. Father, would you also put your hand especially on Tori Soratow today? Lord, we know of her condition and of her past medical issues, and we pray that you will bring her through this and heal Tori. Father, uh, would you do a great work in our city? And Lord, help us as uh, followers of Jesus to be wise in how we respond and how we interact in this time of crisis, to use wisdom because that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Alex Trebek, who was the host of Jeopardy for 35 years, passed away a couple of, of uh, weeks ago. He uh, had famously fought off pancreatic cancer for the last 18 months or two years or so, and uh, there were a lot of tributes that poured in uh, about his life, and a lot of people wrote things. But one in particular in Inc. magazine, a business magazine, caught my attention, and I, I read the article. And in the article, the, uh, the author talked about how Alex Trebek had been a model of servant leadership, that when Jeopardy would tape episodes, and they tape five episodes in a day, that he would arrive at the studio at 6 a.m. to prepare. 
they, uh, during the, the time between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. when they started their taping, he would actually study pronunciation of words and study the questions. And one person wrote, not so that he would appear smart, but so he would actually be smart. He wanted to uh, host the game show in a way that caused other people to shine. And he never put anybody down. He always asked intriguing questions. His comment about that was, that he was going to be on the show and had been on it for 35 years. He's going to be on the show for a long time, and these people get their few minutes of fame, and he wanted them to shine. I do think that's a good portrait of a servant leader. Servant leaders support others, and they seek the best in others. Servant leaders don't need the spotlight, but they serve and promote and undergird the mission of, of the organization. We need more servant leaders. Our world is in more is in need of people who are willing to serve and sacrifice for the good of others. In our political world, there are so many people who talk about wanting to serve when the truth is what they seem to want is self-promotion. Now, obviously, as a church family, we're dealing with a kind of a unique matter today, and I'm going to talk about that. We're talking about uh, the possible change to the bylaws of our church and to change the language about our deacon qualifications. So this morning, I want to work into some of this and explain just a little bit to you. Uh, our deacon nominating committee has rewritten a proposal for our our qualifications for deacon. The old qualifications in our bylaws are rather lengthy. Uh, they're pretty wordy. And uh, the new qualifications are a bit more concise. They're kind of bullet points, about five, six bullet points. And uh, I think they're much more precise. They have a precision of language that I think reflects very carefully what the Bible has to say. But we're going to look at this this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then after this, we'll have a short business session uh, at when we conclude. So let's read the passage together at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 and following. And uh, then we're going to work into this. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their household. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, why would I make a comparison between the qualities of a servant leader in a passage in the Bible that talks about deacons. Because the word deacon actually means servant. The word diakonos is used 39 times in the New Testament, and it is typically translated either to minister, to serve, to care for. Only here is it rendered in a noun form and translated deacon, given a formal title for a church office. Really, uh, deacons in the New Testament are spoken of in very limited form. There are only two passages where we can get some instruction on deacons. The passage we just read and a moment in Acts chapter 6 in which the church faced what I'm going to call a church growth crisis. 
3,000 people have been added to the church on the day of Pentecost. After that, the Bible says day by day, the Lord was adding to the church. So we've got this explosive growth in the church and 11 people. Remember, there are 11 apostles left. Judas is gone. 11 people are left to lead this, care for these people, guide these people. And the apostles are just overwhelmed because they've reached widows. They've reached poor people. And the apostles come together. They come together as a church. They pray about this. And uh, the Spirit inspires an idea, I'm, I'm absolutely certain, in which they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to appoint seven people to be in charge of the task of making sure that the poor and the widows get fed and that we, that we take care of their physical needs. Now, the word deacon is never used in the Acts chapter 6 passage, but I do believe that that is a prototype of deacon ministry, that that's what deacons were called to do. They served the church. They met needs in the church while the apostles administered, led, and, and fed the people from the word of God. The, the apostles say, you take care of this task and we will devote ourselves to the word and to prayer. And so what we see there is a model of ministry for deacons. But fast forward in time, about 30 years, and the church has begun to grow, and there are churches being established in cities all over the Roman Empire, and the Spirit inspires Paul to write some qualifications for these servant leaders, and in the same passage, by the way, though we don't have time to deal with it, he gives the qualifications for the shepherd leader, the pastor of the church, and then the deacons. So let's talk about what the Bible says deacons ought to be and what we're talking about in this, uh, this change of bylaws that has been proposed. First of all, a deacon is, a, is passionate about following Jesus and serving his church. The his there is capitalized because we're talking about Jesus' church. Well, it's capitalized in my notes. It's not on the screen. It should have been. <laughs> but anyway... It's his church. It's the church of Jesus. The bylaw change begins by saying a deacon, first of all, should be a believer. Now, I want to tell you, I am in wholehearted agreement with that. I believe deacons ought to be saved. That really is an, a, uh, an enhancement for the church when deacons are followers of Jesus, actually. That's a good thing. I also think it's a good thing when pastors are saved. That's really a, a good, that's a good qualification, kind of a beginning point. And some people might say, well, that's, that's kind of a given, isn't it? Well, here's what we mean by that. That a deacon is a man who has been transformed by the grace of God. He has embraced God's grace and believes that it is the power of God to rescue and save all people. That he is deeply committed to the core doctrines. He confidently trusts that God's word is sufficient. Deacons are men who, in verse 9 of this passage, hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They are passionate about serving Jesus and passionate about the purpose of the church. That's who these servant leaders ought to be. In my mind, deacons ought to be an exact representation of our mission statement. Our mission statement is that we want to lead people from lifeless religion to passionately pursue Jesus. That's what we want to be about. And our deacons ought to be models of leaving lifeless religion behind and pursuing Jesus with great passion. Now, I want to say this about deacons because I do think it is important. And that is that sometimes people hear that a guy is a deacon. And you know what they start doing out in the world? They start looking at that guy. They're going, I'm going to find him doing something wrong. 
Because deacons are supposed to be perfect. Let me say this to you. Pastors aren't perfect and deacons aren't perfect. God doesn't expect pastors to be perfect or deacons to be perfect. That, we're not going to measure up to that. But let me tell you what. Deacons are not perfect, but they are passionate about serving Jesus. And here's why I say that. I think sometimes we, we set up this artificial standard of perfection that really nobody can attain. And two things happen. The first is that anytime a deacon stumbles, and we all do, anytime a deacon stumbles, the world points at him and says, what a failure, that guy's a hypocrite. No, he's not. He's a, he's a real person. Secondly, what we do when we set up this artificial standard for leadership that's way too high and unattainable for anybody is this. Those who God might be calling to serve as deacons look at that and they say, I could never possibly attain to that standard and they just give up. If we set a standard so high that it's unattainable, it is a standard that nobody seems to be able to attain and then people just give up on it. Deacons are not perfect, but they are passionate. That's the first thing that I want you to know. Second, a deacon is devoted to his family. A deacon leads his family well. Verse 12 says, Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their household. First and foremost, deacons are men who are engaged in the lives of their children. They're not so consumed with career and advancement or hobbies that they leave their children to go their own way. Deacons influence and shape and mold and lead and guide the choices of their children. Deacons are men who are deeply engaged as fathers. They lead their family well. But in the, in the same vein, let me say this. While I want to be an example and a model for my child, I know this. She has a will. Deacons pour into their children and they guide their children and they move their children and point them the way. They give them every opportunity to follow Jesus. They give them opportunity to grow in Christ, to be discipled and to follow God's will for their life. But Parents can't produce outcomes because children have a will. And I think sometimes that artificial standard of perfection is that a man can't be a deacon if he has a child who has strayed from God, and that is totally false. You can give your children every opportunity, but you can't produce outcomes. He's deeply devoted to his children. Secondly, he is deeply devoted to his wife. He is the husband of only one wife. Now, the language of the New Testament here is is a little bit vague if we're just being honest. What does that mean? Well, some people have said, well, it means no polygamy. Well, like one wife at a time. Let me, let me backtrack on that one just a little bit and give you a little information. Polygamy was a very common practice in the Old Testament. You will not find polygamy in the New Testament. By the time of the New Testament and in the Roman Empire, polygamy was still somewhat practiced, but it was a very minor, it was kind of a minority practice, kind of small sects of people practiced it. But in Ephesus, where Paul writes this letter to Timothy, it was a non-issue. So I do not believe it is a prohibition against polygamy. Now, in, in our church and in our tradition over uh, the past hundred years, we have understood it to mean no divorce. Kind of that's it, period. No divorce. Well, what does the expression mean? Husband of one wife 
literally translated is, of one woman, man. That's literally how it reads, if it were to read absolutely literally, which is not grammatically correct in English, but that's what it says. Of one woman, man. He is a one woman man. I believe the standard for deacons and for pastors is higher than just not divorced. I believe it's higher than that. I believe it means he doesn't have a wandering eye. He's not flirtatious. He's not a philanderer. He's not an adulterer. He's not a pornographer. He has eyes for only one woman. That is a high biblical standard of love and faithfulness and fidelity. And that's what Paul says. But what about the divorce issue? Well, let me say this. The word, there is a Greek word for divorce, and it was in Paul's vocabulary. He has used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 five times. 1 Corinthians was written before 1 Timothy. If the Spirit had inspired Paul to say, no divorce, he would have just written no divorce. By the way, that made the expression real easy. It wouldn't be vague at all then. Now, are we saying, if we say, wait a minute, let's, let's reconsider this. Are we throwing the door wide open? Absolutely not. Because here's what we do know from Scripture. God hates divorce. God does not hate divorced people. Let me say that really clearly. But God hates divorce. God hates it because of what it does to a covenant that he has established. It rips it apart. God hates divorce because of what it does in the hearts and souls of two people that have become one flesh. God hates divorce because of what it does to children who are part of that. Yes, God hates divorce. And we need to take that seriously. But we also need to take seriously that in the Bible, there are at least two exception clauses. Let me give you those. Matthew 19, verse 19 says this. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. If you abandon your wife and then you go off and you marry someone else, yes, that's a sin. And that disqualifies a man from being a deacon. But if someone is in a marriage and their spouse commits adultery, and that dissolves the marriage, they were not guilty of a sin. The second is in 1 Corinthians 7.15, which is abandonment. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. John MacArthur, MacArthur is probably one of the most conservative scholars in, a Christian, in the Christian world today. He writes this, quote, while God hates all divorce, he is gracious to the innocent party in these two situations. It seems to me that a blanket policy which simply says divorce disqualifies you take, does not take those things into consideration. And it seems to me we have gone beyond the bounds of grace. That somewhere in this, God's grace needs to be read in to our policies. That we need to consider that. I believe that our deacon nominating committee has made a wise decision uh, in recommending to you that on a case-by-case -case basis, that these situations should could be considered by our deacons for recommending men to be deacons. Number three, a deacon lives a life of integrity. Men who are serious about the Lord's work. The Bible says that they are, they are men of dignity and they are not double-tongued. The only place in the New Testament where the expression double-tongued is used is right here. 
And that, may, that intrigues me as I study Scripture. I, I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. A deacon is a man who, when he says yes, it means yes. And it means yes when he's talking to you, and it means yes when he's talking to you. A deacon is a man who takes a stand on, on moral principles, on biblical principles, and he doesn't say one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group of people. A deacon is a man in the marketplace that when he gives his word, he keeps his word. If he's in business, he keeps his word even if it costs him. I had a friend of mine a few years back in another church who was, he's a deacon in our fellowship, and he was a contractor. And he and I were going to lunch one day, and he came in, and I mean, he just looked so low. He just looked so, I mean, he just, uh, he looked terrible. And I'm like, you know, did somebody die? I mean, what happened to you? And he's, he said, I, I lost a bunch of money this morning. I said, you need to help finding it, you know? I mean, what, what's the deal? And he, he goes, no, no, no. He said, I made a mistake on a contract, and it's going to cost me $5,000. But you know what? I made the mistake, and I told him I'd do it for that price, and I'm going to go do it for that price. He's going to lose money. He's not double-tongued. He didn't say one thing and do another. That's integrity. Deacons are called to be men of integrity. Number, th number four. Now, here's the one that most of you are like, oh, what is he going to say about this? A deacon is self-controlled and spirit-controlled. The expression in this passage of, of, uh, of Scripture, not given to much wine, is the most widely debated of all of them. It's probably even more debated than the husband of one wife passage. So let's dig into it for a few minutes and talk about it. Not given to much wine is the way the King James Version reads. The New American Standard Bible, which I read from, says, not addicted to much wine. The word is peroinos. It means to be near to wine. Oinos is wine and para to be connected to, to be near to. The image that is painted is of the town drunk, one who always has a bottle in his hand, someone who is addicted to alcohol, someone who always seems to lean on alcohol, someone who always has to have it. Obviously, that person is disqualified as a deacon. You know, I love, I grew up loving the old Andy Griffith show. Uh, it was even in reruns when I was watching it as a kid, and I, but I still love to watch that show. And I realize I'm dating myself. Some of you in this room probably don't even know what that is, on the, uh, you, you guys on the corners. But some of you know the Andy Griffith show. And everybody loved the old guy named Otis. Anybody remember Otis? Anybody remember Otis? Yeah. He's a lovable lush. He's a town drunk. Otis is so familiar with his charge of public drunkenness that Otis stumbles into the jail drunk, takes the keys himself, locks himself in the cell, and lays down and sleeps it off. Otis is obviously not deacon material, okay? He is not. And we could all agree on that part. That, that's not hard. Because I don't know any way you could debate the reality that drunkenness is a sin. There's just no way. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine. It's a command in Scripture. It's obvious to me that drunkenness is clearly a sin. And so when Paul says, not addicted to much wine, he is saying that deacons should be people who are never drunk with wine. 
And some people will say, well, that, that seems to be a little too standard in elementary. Don't, don't we all know that? Isn't that a given? Well, it wasn't a given in the church at Corinth. They were having these meals that were called the Agape Feast. And at the Agape Feast, they were getting together um, in homes typically, but picture in our mind in the fellowship hall, and they're having a, a party after a worship service, and they all get drunk. And Paul has to admonish them. He has to, to sort of, to speak very bluntly to them about how wrong it is to get drunk at a church fellowship. This is clearly a sin. But Paul has to spell it out for those people. But does the Bible demand complete abstinence and even of spiritual leaders? Well, it's obvious that there is at least a medical exception to that. 1 Timothy 5.23 says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. And so it is obvious that uh, there is this medical exception for that in the least. Secondly, I would say this. I, I'll give you a little background on me. I grew up in an atmosphere in which I was told, it was preached from the pulpit, uh, at least this is a message I got and many others like me, that if you take a drink of alcohol, you have sinned. If you let a beer touch your lips, you have sinned against God. And I lived in fear of that because I was pretty sure if I drank a beer someday as a teenager, I'd go to hell. And then I read my Bible. And you guys do realize it's not in there, okay? It's not in there. Now, to be drunk is clearly a sin. But the Bible nowhere says that to take a drink of alcohol is a sin. Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Jesus did not turn the water into Welch's. It was wine. Jesus himself drank wine, and he certainly did at the Passover meal. He says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus drank wine. And if for anybody who ever, uh, by the way, I've heard this one. It was grape juice. No, it wasn't. It was wine. Passover is in March or April. The grape harvest is in June and July in Israel. There's no way that you get fresh grape juice in March or April in the ancient world. No refrigeration. It was wine. So Jesus did drink it and Jesus never sinned. And so when we write policies, what we want to do is write those policies in accordance with Scripture. And the Bible is very clear that drunkenness is a sin, and that's why the proposal is that a deacon is never drunk with wine, and we added another line to that, and it is, or any other intoxicating substance. We are living in the midst of an opioid crisis. States are legalizing drugs that are incredibly harmful for people. Two weeks ago, the state of Oregon legalized heroin. That's absurd. That is way out there, okay? And so we wanted to say, okay, what does the Bible say about this? However, I want you to know this, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I do not drink alcohol. I don't drink, drink alcohol, and I'm going to tell you why I don't. It's not for the fear that I had when I was a kid, when I was, I, th I think, good-intentioned but misinformed. I don't drink alcohol for two reasons. One is this. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. My wife tells me that I have a personality that is given to extremes. I mean, I don't just ride my bike. I ride 100 miles, okay? I mean, I, I fear that if I were to drink, that everything's beneficial. I mean, everything is permissible for me. It wouldn't be a sin if I took a drink. But I might be mastered by something. I, 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 I do fear that. I'll just be honest and tell you that. I want to be very careful with that. And I want to say to our teenagers, to you college students, alcohol is a very dangerous substance. It really is. And you need to be incredibly careful. Everything might be permissible for you, not a sin, but does it benefit you? And could it possibly master you? Could it control your life? The second reason that I don't drink is Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Here's where I think we make mistakes, all right? We want to ask this question about any activity. Is it a sin? And we think, if it's not a sin, then I can do it. And if it is a sin, then I can't do it. I would propose to you that there is a third question to ask. And that is, is it wise? I want to live a life of wisdom. Because wisdom is of great profit. That's what the Bible says. I don't mean material profit. And so here's where, what I'm, where I'm coming to with all of this so that you kind of condense it for you. And that is this. Our deacon nominating committee was challenged with writing a policy to say what the Bible says. And I believe our proposed policy says what the Bible says. But I personally am going to still live by my own conviction that it is best not to consume alcohol. And I will even challenge those who are in leadership in our church that that's what you should do in deacon leadership. And so that's kind of what the policy says so that you are fully aware of what that says. Let me tell you what it doesn't say. If you adopt the policy, we're not having a keg at the next deacons meeting. That is not happening, okay? It's just not happening. All right, let's just all be clear on that and not get... Two worked up. For, fifth and finally, a deacon is a good steward of money. He is not fond of sordid gain. The word fond, he does not love money. The Bible tells us that it is the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. And he does not love or is not fond of sordid gain, that is dishonest gain. A deacon is a man in his business dealings who has integrity. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, verses that Paul would write in just a few chapters. Instruct those who are enriched in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Here's what Paul says. A deacon makes his money honestly, and a deacon gives his money generously. That summarizes that last point, and really that's a summary of what, what it is that our committee has tried to propose to our church to make the language of our 
of our deacon qualifications more concise, it's much shorter, and more precise, with more precision of language. And so that's what we have proposed. And uh, the way this works in our church is you get to vote on that. And so in a few minutes after I pray, we're going to have a short business meeting, and then we're going to worship at the end for just a few minutes. But I want to ask you to please stick around, especially if you're church members. You need to stick around for this. It's an important part of what we're doing. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for uh, the way that you've worked in our lives. I thank you for the way that you've worked in our church. I thank you for good and godly men who serve as deacons in this church. Thank you for men in the past who have served your church so well. And I ask you now to grant us wisdom that we might know what you would have us do so that there are even more servant leaders who will rise up and serve your church, your purpose, and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.